What do you think was the greatest lesson your dad taught you about business? Uh, hard work. <laughs> um, no, it, it really was. It was hard work and making sure that you take care of your people. Our guest today is Ellen Chen. Ellen is an investor, mentor, and co-founder of Mendocino Farms, a fast, casual sandwich shop with an almost cult-like following. Ellen and her husband created Mendocino Farms in 2005. Together, they grew the business to several booming locations before TPG acquired it in 2017. Since stepping away from the day-to-day operations, Ellen has worked to support female-led startups through mentorship and investing. In our chat, Ellen talks about the decision to double down on Mendocino Farms and their core product. She describes the guerrilla marketing tactics she used to launch a startup in a pre-social media world and explains how defining the company's culture early was instrumental in its success. Ellen also describes the challenges she faced as a woman in business, asserting that doors would have remained closed had she not had a male partner. She explains the importance of having conversations about the incredible investment disparity between men and women and the practical steps that she is taking to change that. We learned a lot with speaking with Ellen, and I'm sure you'll get a lot out of this. So here is our conversation with Ellen Chen. Hey guys, don't forget to sign up for an exclusive invite to Prometheus. Prometheus is the only app where you can get a masterclass from investment pros and seamlessly invest in hedge funds, crypto funds, VC, and private equity. Go to our website, prometheusalts.com, and get started today. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to hear a little bit more of your story. Your restaurants are some of my favorite in the city. I'm probably going to go there today. Um, I'd love to start out with just hearing a little bit about how you started. Uh, you know, you started in finance as well, I think, early in your career. Is that something that you've always wanted to get into? Uh, uh, ish. I started in finance-ish. <laughs> but thanks, Ryan, for having me on. Um you know what? It's interesting. My background obviously was not in restaurant, just like you said, from the very beginning. I graduated with an economics degree. And so I had it in my mind that after I graduated, I wanted to go work for back then. It was like a big six accounting firm, which had a consulting arm to it. And so that was my goal. So I went and I actually graduated and went to go work for Accenture. Oh, wow. um, today, it was Anderson Consulting back then. Um, so I was a technology consultant when I uh, that, that was my first job. Oh, wow. What attracted you to technology that you wanted to get into that? Well, I think there was a couple of things. Consulting attracted me because somewhere in the back of my head, I knew I wanted to have my own business one day. And, you know, when you're in your teens or twenties, thinking that consulting would give you a wider breadth of kind of, um, what a business looked like, hopefully being able to go and work in different departments and see, you know, how businesses are built. So that was why I wanted to get into consulting technology. Um, I think it wasn't that I was seeking technology. I was always interested. Like I, I was always kind of like into computers and stuff, but that was what Anderson had to offer at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of hopped into it, but I really fell in love with it. I, uh, my first, uh, project was at Sprint PCS. Okay. Wow. And so now it's like a very well-known brand. It was a startup back then. We were like the first employees almost at uh, Sprint. So they were just launching their wireless technology. And because of that, I kind of just fell in love with what was happening. And then I'm going to date myself. <laughs> the 90s, the internet boom happened. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so that was just kind of like the thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was just kind of a, it was just something I fell into, but ended up loving. What is that like being at the forefront of a new technology so young in your career as well? Yeah. Um, It must've been exciting to help build something from scratch. Yeah, it was actually amazing because I thought I wanted to become, you know, I said I had the idea that I wanted to be a business owner or had my own business one day. Didn't realize that my first job would be literally working for a startup of that magnitude. And I'll have to say, I don't think I was thinking of it that way because I was so young in my career. It was just like, what a cool thing to come and be part of something that was being built. You know, my first uh, like project at Sprint PCS to work with the CFO and I basically created all his daily reports. And so Amazing. it was, yeah, it was, it gave me really great insight into um, kind of what was happening, went into the customer care department and developed all their processes of what that would look like when customers would call in with complaints. And I got to work with all the different departments to write out what that would look like. And then I got to work with the billing department and really kind of flush what that billing department would look like, which was kind of like the beating heart, I guess, of Mm -hmm. what was happening too. So it was exciting and I got to learn a lot and I got to meet a lot of great people at the same time. What was it that made you always want to be a business owner? You probably had an entrepreneur mindset from a childhood-like age. Yeah, Um, it was my father. Mm -hmm. So my dad was an entrepreneur. And so I think I got to see what that was like, even though he worked his butt off. I mean, the... My father was incredible and he worked nonstop. Hmm. Um, But I think, you know, he was in manufacturing. So it was interesting, you know, just kind of parallel was blue collar. He was an engineer and built this really amazing company. But when we would go to the factory floor and visit um, and he was there often, it was just the fact that his employees had such a respect and just a deep love for what my dad had created and built. And they were, he had created like not just a job, but a livelihood for them. Wow. And so somewhere in the back of the, my mind, that that's where I was like, that, that is, that's where it kind of drew me into like wanting to create my own business one day is how could you give back and create that opportunity for others? So that that's where it came from was really from what my dad did. What was that business that he built? It was a manufacturing company. So they did all the, um, so all the buildings in Taiwan, they, cause that's where I'm from. He was actually the one who did all the, he figured out how to do all the coloring. So instead of just like steel, you know, you could do black, you could do whatever. And so that's what his factory did. Oh, wow. Incredible. And then he immigrated to America. We immigrated to America in the late seventies and he actually would travel um, and work one month in Taiwan and spend one month with us. And then in the summers we would go and spend um, with my dad uh, in Taiwan. So that was kind of what our you know life looked like until I got to high school. You must have learned a lot with all that traveling and spending a lot of time with your dad. What do you think was the greatest lesson your dad taught you about business? Uh, hard work. <laughs> um, no, it, it really was. It was hard work and making sure that you take care of your people. Um, your employees are really one of the most important things. And I think that was, again, the thing that really sparked my interest uh, my dad is just an incredible person. You you take that lesson to how you operate your businesses today? Yeah. So, you know, when um, my husband and I, we actually had another restaurant prior to Mendocino Farms. But I think one of the most important things, and he is um, Italian and his family also had their own. Uh, they were entrepreneurs as well. So we had really similar kind of like paths as we grew up. So I think we had um, the same passion of, you know, taking care of. Uh, our team members. Um, And so that was just ingrained in our culture. I mean, 
our mantra at Mendocino Farms is, you know, eat happy. And part of it is how do you eat happy and take, you know, who are the key stakeholders in that kind of, you know, value. And so, um, and one of them is taking care of your team, you know, so our key stakeholders were obviously our guests, our team members and our vendors and partners. And so the, the whole entire kind of culture and everything was, was built around that. Oh, amazing. So how did you move from a world of, you know, business and finance and working for a CFO to actually starting your own business, your first restaurant and moving into an entrepreneurship role? Yeah, I think it was timing um, and a little bit of it is luck and timing, I guess. Um, like I said, uh, earlier in the 90s, I actually had left Anderson or in the next, I mean, it's called an extension now, but um, I went to go work for actually an advertising agency. And then from there, I went to go work for an online ad agency when the internet, you mm-hmm. know, kind of like the whole bubble, like oh, wow. it, it, it went crazy. And then um, from there, I actually got recruited to working for another online gaming company. And that gaming company got acquired by Electronic Arts, mm-hmm. which was really amazing, really exciting. And so at that time, I think that was almost in 2000, I decided that I wanted to take some time off because uh, I went to go work for Electronic Arts. It's an amazing company. Yeah, huge. It was really hard to go back and work for a very corporate environment where there was thousands of employees. You just, mm-hmm. I just didn't know where I fit in when I was, it was always like a small company that I worked for um, for a while. And so, yeah, taking time off, I met my husband who was my business, is also my business partner, mm-hmm. um, but I met him. He's in the restaurant business and he had another restaurant called Skews. I jumped, I, I said to him, I go, Hey, I'm taking time off. Would love to learn more about the, you know, the restaurant business. I love food, huge passion. Can I come work for free? So that's kind of how it all started. Um, I, I came into SKUs. I started working as like a registered person. Um, oh, wow. From, right from the bottom. Oh my God. Like you name it. Like I was there. I was front of the house. I was back of the house. I was cleaning the bathroom and it was really fun because you know what I realized was no matter what, it's a business, but the product that you're selling is incredible because it's it's a product that you can provide to someone and give them either immediate gratification or if they didn't like it, you could actually take care of it and you know change mm-hmm. kind of how they felt about your product, which is something that I didn't get to experience working for these like you know Fortune 500 companies. Um, and so I loved it so much that I said, hey you know what, would you like a business partner? Because he didn't really have a business infra- infrastructure cr- like built because mm-hmm. he had one restaurant. He was really culinary operations and very creative. And uh, he said, yeah, sure. So I wrote a check. I invested in Skews Teriyaki. And then we opened up a second one. Oh, wow. um, and then we realized um, that, you know, that just wasn't as scalable back then. People had no idea what teriyaki was. We had to explain. Where Now it's like eating a hamburger. Yeah. So it was really interesting. And so um, we got married, we had a baby, and then we had this moment of this isn't scalable. And, uh, you know, we sold it and took that capital and we decided to. And that's when we actually started Mendocino Farms was after that. Oh, well, how did you how do you think you can navigate being a business partner with your partner? Do you, is it difficult? And how do you navigate that? It is very difficult <laughs> and very challenging. I think when we were young, when we did it at first, I mean, he was letting you clean the toilets while your boyfriend was like, know, yeah, but he did it too. He did okay. it too. Right. And he probably did it better than I did. <laughs> um, but you know, it was interesting because I think we're both really hardworking. We're both very passionate about, you know, what mm-hmm. we do and we loved, um, you know, the business itself. So that was kind of like the common foundation. I think the interesting part as we kind of evolved as business partners and being, you know, life partners 
we realized that what we had to do was really create lanes um, of what we each own. So we didn't cross over each other. But let me tell you, Ryan, it was really hard in the beginning. I mean, we were stepping on each other's toes. I mean, it, th there's challenges and there's still even challenges today. Right. But I think it's like with any partnership, you have to have really great communication and you have to have a lot of empathy and understanding for each other. Um, I think the nice part is as we scaled and we got to bring in a team of people, there was more separation because um, we kind of owned our own departments and owned our own team. Um, but, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, we believed in our, you know, the, in the vision of what we were um, working on and building. And so I think that was the thing, no matter the disagreements we had, we knew that what we wanted to do was, you know, make Mendocino Farms come to life and really be able to grow and scale it. Well, what, but it's hard. Yeah. There's no, there's no secret. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there were quite a few arguments uh, over. The, oh my God. Yeah. It's like you go to work and then we, our joke is you bring it home and you're having like board meetings, like, you know, at, at your <laughs> dinner table as you're going to bed and it's like, no, you just got to shut it off sometimes. Yeah. You have your shareholders literally going to bed with you. <laughs> literally. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that's incredible that you guys were able to navigate it and build such like a, you know, an incredible brand that's so famous in Los Angeles and synonymous with the culture here. What was the original philosophy for Mendocino Farms and what were the early days like? It must have been very different than the version we see today. And yeah. you know, how did you guys like bootstrap that together? So like I said, we were lucky in terms of financing. We did not have to go out and raise. We were able to uh, sell our uh, restaurant SKUs and take that capital to be able to, you know, build Mendocino Farms. Interesting enough, we had a partner in the beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, when we first created Mendocino Farms, we didn't think that we were going to scale it to the like to where it is today. We thought we were going to open up one. And Mario and I had this idea that we were going to open up like different concepts. Um, and we already had written menus and kind of a business plan for um, a Mexican concept, a pizza concept, a burger concept. And it was really interesting. Um, day one, when we opened up Mendocino Farms, the lines were insanely long. We were in downtown LA and we wow. literally sold out at one o'clock. And so obviously, you know, we are business people. We're like, okay, we'll raise our pars. We'll, you know, we'll be able to sell more sandwiches. And literally every single day for like the next couple of weeks of opening, I mean, we just kept selling out. And that's, there was like this aha moment for Mario and I, um, we're like, well, I think people really understand sandwiches and, you know, <laughs> it's a good, it's a good uh, category to be in. And so, you know, I, I think for us, we were in the grind every single day. Um, we built it, we worked it. Um, we did not bring in any investors until three years later for our first location or a second location. And it took us that long to open our second location. And it was by design because the idea was we really wanted to build, you know, the, the, the foundation with, you know, the recipes, with the culture, with the training, with the team, knowing that if we were going to take it to scale, we would need, you know, all those pieces there. Um, I know a lot of people will jump into the second one when they see success. Mm -hmm. uh, but we just know that with that foundation, that would be kind of like, you know, the, the, I don't want to say it's the secret, but it would be the, you know, the way we were going to scale, hopefully more successfully than if we had just decided to open up a second location without all that. How did you build that cult like following so early on? You said you had lines of people around downtown LA's location 
and that all, there was no social media at the time that allowed no. you to go and build a cult-like demand. How do people learn about yeah. this product and word of mouth? You know, that must have mm-hmm. been, you know, daunting for you at the time. You know, we actually, our other restaurant was in downtown LA and it was literally, we opened up right across from it. So we already had a lot of relationships in that area. And so I think it's interesting without social media, a lot of it's viral, a lot of guerrilla marketing tactics. And uh, for Mario and I, this idea of creating a neighborhood gather, you know, it was a neighborhood sandwich place, but it was really this gathering place for people to come to. And so even now for every single one of our openings, Obviously, social is really important because you can, you know, you can connect with people digitally. But for us, it's still one on one. And so we literally we, we would create, um, you know, we had our back then it was a Rolodex mm-hmm. um, of um, people that we knew. And we would literally call them and email them and say, hey, we're opening. We'd love to invite you to, you know, we'd have opening parties before like friends and family. And we would invite people. We would make, you know, mm-hmm. we would serve them free sandwiches. So already before we were building a little bit of that excitement about who we were, we were already sharing our food. Um, mm-hmm. So by day one, people already knew who we were. We also had a really big catering business too. Oh, and okay. so we actually did. So we would call office buildings and talk to, you know, the catering department or their office assistant and say, hey, can we bring you food to your offices? And so that's still, um, you know, something that we do today, because I believe with food, especially you got to taste it to really know what you're getting into. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that really, I mean, it's building relationships um, through people and having Mm -hmm. our guests be our directors of marketing. Were you guys creating the recipes yourself? There seems to be an incredible focus and philosophy around fresh ingredients. There's almost Mm -hmm. like this comfort food that is also healthy. Um, there's like kind of a motif of like, you know, everything that you guys make is relatively healthy for people. What would you say your original philosophy was and how are you creating these recipes? You weren't a chef by trade. How did you go about and just create these incredible sandwiches? So I can't take any credit for it because you're right. I'm not a chef, nor do I really cook. Uh, my husband, actually, he is the culinary kind of genius, I think, behind Medicina Farm. So uh, from the beginning. Uh, so he did, he made all the recipes. He created the menu by year two. We actually hired an amazing executive chef to come in and help and be kind of like our partner. So she really was able to work with Mario and, um, execute on kind of his vision and what he was thinking. Um, in terms of food, I, I think that was the thing was how can we elevate, you know, like a subway or mm-hmm. like a Jersey Mike back then, to really ha- serve people better food, better quality ingredients, and really working with um, like farms and partners that we feel shared our same philosophy and um, ethos on food. And so that's something that was built from, you know, the very beginning um, and then all the way to today. So, you know, I-, I can't say everything is from like this amazing partnership or farm, but things that we, people that we feel like are, you know, who are creating really great products, we'll partner with them. We'll really get to know them. And then we'll talk about them too. Cause part of it is this shared, like we want to elevate them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I love so much about Los Angeles is there's this culture of working with farmers and yeah. getting, you know, natural, healthy, organic ingredients. And your restaurant seems to want to embody that and embrace that a lot, which is amazing. I think there's a lot of takeaways that you can apply to a lot of other businesses and what you guys have built. When you restaurants are one of the riskiest investments people can make, there's a lot of saturation around them. Yeah. How do you feel about navigating a world 
that is so saturated early on, it must've been scary for you guys. How did you approach that idea of, you know, the restaurant business and how many fail so often and, you know, navigating that world? Well, I think the first thing with, especially with restaurants and yeah, there is, you know, I think it's nine out of 10, they say, Um, I think what Murray and I did, and I don't want to say differently because everyone treats their business as a business, but we really treated it as a business where, um, you know, we were there to work it every single day. We listened to our guests, you know, we took care of our um, team members and, you know, we didn't treat people like they were transactions. Um, You know, it's not about the sandwich that I sell today, it's about this relationship that I build with our guests for the long term. And so that's how we viewed it. You know, I think bottom line, top line, really important, but everything in between is what really makes, you know, everything, I guess, continue to tick and grow and uh, move. Um, And so I, I think, you know, the most important part is just making sure that everyone create can create the same product that you make. I mean, no, everyone can create a sandwich or a salad, but what you can't recreate is kind of like the soul and the purpose behind the company, or I should say the company, but your brand. Right. And so I think that was a difference is we really created like who we were from the very beginning and what our purpose was. And it was this idea of selling happy and being the neighborhood gathering place for our guests to come to. And so what does that look like? Mm -hmm. You know? And so for us, hospitality was such an interesting or important component of what we built. Um, customer service is great. It's kind of like that one-time thing, but a hospitality, you know, really creating great hospitality is how you make people feel. And I think for us, like, you know, when we train it, it's everyone can get into a car and go, where do you want to eat? Everyone can say a sandwich, but mm-hmm. what you really, your emotion that you're evoking, I think that's what rises to the top. And so to be able to create a brand that people can be, really relate to just from not just a product, but just this infinity of like, I have an infinity for this brand. Um, it, it makes me feel good. So we train that from, you know, to our team members, how do you make people feel like they're family members and that you're taking care of them? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's all ingrained and incorporated in the way we train from the minute you walk into that door to the minute you leave, you know, we're building this relationship all the way through and hopefully that cycles back. Wow, that's amazing. And you didn't have a, a huge background in building a brand other than the first restaurant that you did. How did you learn how to to do that so well? Even things down to the way you name your products, like that we talked earlier about the not-so-fried chicken sandwich, uh, which is my favorite. Even the name in that, it makes me feel like I'm doing somewhat it's healthier and it yeah. tastes amazing. It's comfort, comfort food. You feel better eating it. Like, How did you guys learn about how to do that? I don't know if it was learn than more, again, listening to our guests. And it's also, we put ourselves like in the shoe of the guests, right? So I think there's a part of it where we built something in a place that we wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's what it was. It's just a culmination of really making, like we we had a restaurant prior to, so we were able to see what people wanted, what people gravitated to. And we were practicing a lot of these things before. Um, and then honestly, like my husband, I mean, he's really great at it too. He, um, he was in the restaurant business. And so he, he had already started playing with this idea of like, how do you create these relationships? How do you build culture? Um, and so it's just something that, you know, we geeked on and we would always talk about and, um, you know, we continued to evolve and, and eventually brought in a really great team to help us, um, continue to be able to scale that. Cause I think that's the hardest part. Like, Store one and store two, store three, you can still kind of have that kind of organically. Mm-hmm. 
then really, like I said, we really built the foundation through training. Um, that love that I was telling you or that feeling you get when you walked in, um, I don't want to say it's a checklist and it's that like, you know, robotic, but we literally from, you know, the host that took your order to the register person mm-hmm. who takes your money to the expediter, to the busser who comes in, you know, brings the food to your table. There are things that they do beside their technical skills that we train them, but there's things that we train them to do to make you feel like, you know, you can build this relationship with someone. And for us, the most important thing is we let them do it in their most authentic and genuine voice. So it doesn't come off manufactured, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's, you know, there's a lot of methodology behind it. We call it kind of operationalizing our culture, but at the same time, it's our team member, you know, it's how we hire and who we hire. I think that makes a really big difference too. So from the very beginning of, when we're hiring, we're looking for certain qualities and characteristics in a person. And it's not just about have they ever worked in a restaurant before. Yeah. You know, so I think it starts with that. Yeah, that was kind of going to lead into my next question is how do you scale something so effectively where you're in like the dozens of restaurants now and keep and maintain that idea of warmth and culture that you guys became known for? I think, again, it starts with people first um, and hiring amazing people to help kind of you know, propel kind of our message and our brand forward. And this is internally within the four walls of the restaurants. And then obviously, you know, in our, you know, we call it base camp, it's not corporate offices, um, but with, you know, our executives as well. You know, we did a really interesting thing. We, we invested a lot in training where most, I think, restaurants don't do that even at our size. We can't do it now or we had to stop doing it because of the pandemic. But prior to the pandemic, every single, we call them our hospitality team members, which is our front of the house team. Mm-hmm. They didn't just, you know, when we hired them, they didn't just go into the restaurant. We didn't give them like a handbook, their uniform, let them like shadow someone for one day and then they're off to the races to work we actually bring them into our base camp and they're there for two days and they're not just learning the technical skills but they're really under learning about who we are why our purpose and so we really talk to them about like what do we believe in why are you know why do we do what we do we actually let them taste through every single food item that we have too which you know that usually doesn't happen in a restaurant mm-hmm. and we have someone guiding them and facilitating them telling them about every single ingredient and the partners and farms that we work with so that when we get they get back into the restaurant they actually already have a really deep knowledge of who they're working for you know and why they're there so you know i think for us we tell them like if this is too much for you you know, it's okay, let's high five. And, you know, hopefully you'll be our biggest, you know, fans as a guest and not as a team member. Um, But yeah, so I I think we just invest a lot in people. um, And that's throughout their career as well. Yeah, I I noticed that you guys also kind of stick to, you know, focusing in on a product, you don't try to introduce like a pizza or like things that you don't, um, you know, to try to scale differently. What do you how do you think it's important to for a company and a restaurant to focus in on what they're good at and build something with like extreme focus. Yeah. I mean, that's what we say, you know, plant the, plant your flag in, you know, what you're best at and don't deviate from it. We call it, don't take these left turns. You know, I think sometimes people get, um, they hear about like, Oh, this is a, you know, this is trendy right now. So let's jump on that. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not to say you can't incorporate different trends into your core product, but we really, we started with sandwiches. That was our core products. We had a couple salads, Um, and then it's also then listening to our guests, you know, what do they really want and what's going to move the needle. And for us, 
we realized as we were going to suburbia and people were starting to look more at like wellness and health, that salads was going to be something really important because that way we could have, you can be indulgent one day with your sandwiches and then you could be, you know, healthier maybe throughout the week. Um, and so we just listened to our guests, but yeah, we, we stayed focused. We did, you know, I guess jump the shark and throw in us, uh, you know, people would be like, do you have ketchup? Do you have French fries? Do you have this or that? And we're like, no, we're really good at this. But if you want that, you know, that's our neighbor down the street. You know, a lot of people said, hey, why don't you guys serve coffee? Hmm. You know, because yeah. a lot of the times we're perceived as a cafe. And again, for us, we and if you look at our, a lot of our restaurants, um, I would say almost all of them have a coffee shop or a Starbucks either next to it or in the center, because our idea of creating this neighborhood gathering place where it's almost like a, you know, I guess in the olden days, it was like Times Square where people go and grab, you know, hang out grab dessert, grab, you know, go shopping, whatever it is. Um, so this idea was to be this neighborhood gathering place, be that third place anchored by, you know, a Starbucks or a coffee shop. So mm-hmm. people could go grab coffee in the morning, then come over and have lunch or have lunch and then have your afternoon coffee. And so for us, it's really building synergy. So our thing is let someone else do it, let someone do it great and let's just compliment them. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think planting your flag and really focusing on what you do and continue to elevate and do it well mm-hmm. is really important. So you don't get, you know, sidetracked by all these other things. That's interesting. I actually did notice that about you guys. And how intentional is that location planning when you're looking at a spot? Like, for example, the location I go to here at Fairfax near the Grove, you can go to Sidecar, get a coffee and donut after, yeah. which is probably not the best for me, and then go to, you know, Trader Joe's next door to it. Yeah. You know, you, you're, the Grove is across the street. Do you guys create a lot of planning into your locations and the culture that you can create around that area? Completely. Yeah. I mean, that is the one thing we look at when we look at our real estate. Um, We want to be by like-minded brands. We want to be kind of in that transactional area where people live their lives. You know, I think to your point, you know, you're going to go to Trader Joe's and probably pick up some groceries. I think it's interesting for us at that location that you're talking about it was imperative when we worked with um, the landlord that you have to bring in coffee. You know, you have to bring in coffee. It was Pete's before no, okay. Sidecar, mm-hmm. um, and so Sidecar opened with us as our neighbor. So yeah, it's very intentional. We'll work, and we've created relationship with all these different brands to say, hey, if we go into the center, you want to come in. Um, you know, if we're talking to a landlord, we'll say, hey, we really want you know. X, Y, and Z brands, will you, will, you do, you know, will you be willing to entertain it? So it's very intentional because we just want to be where people you know, live their life. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in what you think the restaurant industry has changed you know, since you've started in it. Like I'm sure you're seeing, especially in the landscape of Los Angeles, some great restaurant tours come and go and create new concepts. Yeah. How have you seen the landscape of restaurants in Los Angeles change over, you know, since you guys have started in your business? I think it's been really interesting. I think the biggest change, and I think COVID also forced it too, was bringing technology and third-party delivery into um, mm. into the lives of restaurants, whether you were fine dining all the way down to fast food, right? And um, I think technology has created so that people have access to things at their fingertips and they just want things the way they want it, you know? And I think that's, the one thing for us, even at Mendocino Farms, how we evolved, we were always, we did a lot of catering and we did a lot of off-premise because we started in downtown LA. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, it, for us, technology was huge. It, it's it's bringing convenience to people. And I think you're seeing that even today. And that's landscape here in LA. And I think that's landscape across the country. 
Um, I think what you're, you know, for us, even in um, LA, I think what we've been seeing a lot is people wanting things that are better for you, not just healthier, but better tasting and better for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a format that's more approachable. So I'm seeing a lot of, you know, chefs who are now creating fast casual concepts because they realize like the $30, $40 price point that you can't have that every day, but somewhere between like the, now I guess it's 15 to 20 and that fat premium fast casual, you're, you're seeing a lot more of that even today and people are loving it. Yeah, there's a lot of debate around the delivery services. Are they good or are they bad for restaurants? The fees that they take, mm-hmm. some restaurants, you know, get taken advantage of them. How do you feel about that? You obviously think there's a positive element to them. You know, I again, there's good and there's bad. It, and it's kind of like this is necessary evil that we can't live without because people, our guests want that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for, you know, and I can only speak for Mendocino Farms, We've created really great relationships with the Postmates and the DoorDashes. Um, and that, because I think we were early adopters, because mm-hmm. we kind of saw that there was this movement towards people wanting this kind of access to food. And so we started talking to Postmates. Um, and, you know, we had certain criteria where, like, if you want to work with us, you know, we really need you to be an advocate for our brand. Mm-hmm. You need to take care of our customers. You need to take care of us. And in return, we did the same thing for them. And so it was really relationship built. DoorDash, and I take it back, DoorDash was our first third-party delivery company we worked with. And they were really willing to work with us and listen to us. And then from a, you know, I think it's the price perspective, it just you figure out how to make it work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of people now and unfortunately we do it too. You know, we have to inflate our prices um, to be able to work with these, you know, delivery companies. And I think our customers are willing to pay for it. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's a give and takes um, kind of relationship. And unfortunately they have a lot of fees tacked onto it, but you know, again, people are willing to pay for convenience now. Yeah, um, for sure. I can so, tell you, you know, how. I know. Yeah, I just I I know it's like a love hate relationship. It's harder for mom and pops, um, but I think they're really trying to figure out how to work with them as well because they realize that they need to take care of kind of this whole restaurant ecosystem and not just the larger um, restaurant groups. Yeah, and I think you can really scale the amount of volume you can do as a restaurant because mm-hmm. you know not a lot of people want to travel to you. If I it's and yeah. it's also when I open up a, the app and I can see like their full menu. Uh, with yep. photos and everything very easily, as opposed to some, you know, versions of restaurants, it's more difficult. You're less yeah. likely to order from them. So it seems like a necessary evil to, that you have to kind of use. Yeah, I think it's just a necessary evil, unfortunately. Yeah, and it's a, and it's a great product that people are willing to maybe pay for. That's going to ask you, like, when you see the markets right now and what's going on in the world with inflation, how do you navigate that as a business owner? And obviously it's affecting food prices and the way you guys get your raw raw materials. Has that been difficult for you right now? And how do you navigate that as a business owner? Yeah. I mean, it's for sure challenging. It's very challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of it is, you know, for us, and I I said it earlier, our, our partners and our vendors are key stakeholders in the company. We build relationships with them. And so I think for us, it's continuing to have communication and working with them and trying to figure out how do we, you know, create synergy between the two of us. And it's just not telling them don't raise our prices. 
you know, it, it, we're, we're being thoughtful too within our restaurant, um, everything from packaging, mm-hmm. from efficiency with productivity. And, you know, like I said, technology is, has been really interesting to help us with labor, with food, for, you know, all, forecasting all these different things so we can get better and better and tighter and tighter with the things that, you know, we're working on within the four walls that people can't see or taste. It doesn't affect the product, Mm -hmm. but it's what we can do internally. So then we don't have to continue to raise our prices. But unfortunately, you know, there's just a lot of things we we have done and and we continue to do. But it's, again, what's happening in this world, we we do take, we didn't take price increases at all, actually, through COVID. I think we just did it for the first time, Mm -hmm. and very small, and whatever then we can pass back to our guests, and we can lower the prices, we will as well. You know, because for us, we really want to be approachable. So we look at it as not just what's what does it look like on the bottom line? You know, there's a certain threshold that we have to hit, but it doesn't mean we have to make more and more. Right. So mm-hmm. I think it's like a give and take relationship. And that's how we look at it. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's challenging, but you just got to find it in different places, in different ways that hopefully will not impact your product and how you treat, you know, how we treat our guests. Yeah, a lot of your resources and the farms that you get a lot of your raw materials from are probably small businesses, mom and pop shops Mm -hmm. and farms that are in the greater Los Angeles area. How does it feel to be able to empower these people and supply revenue to them, you know, and be able to expand what they do? I mean, I think it's great. I, I think for us, we have huge appreciation that they're willing to work with us and be patient with us as well. Right. So I think it goes both ways. Um, you know, and then part of it is like what you're saying is, uh, working with small farms, working with smaller partners, it's hard, you know, like for us, we're not there to go, okay, you gotta, you gotta be at this price in order for, for yeah. us to work with you. And I'll give you an example with one of our, uh, farms It was called Scarborough farms. They provided us with all their greens. They came to us and they said, Hey, we got to raise our prices. This, you know, we just don't have a choice at this point. Things are getting really expensive. And instead of saying, no guys, you, we're not going to pay for it and we're going to go find someone else or say, yes, okay, we'll agree to it. We're like, we, we said to them, Hey, let's really talk through what we can do to maybe minimize that. And so what we ended up realizing is they were spending so much money on their cardboard boxes that they were dropping off of all their grains. Mm-hmm. We said, Hey, why don't we create a system? We'll go buy all the um, crates, reusable crates. We'll just continue to recycle them and we'll clean them. And you just come pick them up. And that was like a huge game changer because it was like, we saved so much money, you know, and it was very synergistic. They didn't have to raise their prices and we didn't have to then pass that along to our guests. So I think a lot of it is just being very thoughtful and talking to people and trying to figure out how to be more creative with what we do. That's interesting. Like, how do you go? It seems like you can go about saving money in very innovative ways through things that people would not normally think that if I save this box that maybe only costs less than a dollar, when you start scaling that, it adds up quite a bit. Yeah. How, are you finding that in other areas of your business where you can come up with clever ideas to really grow the business and scale it in a better way? I think, you know, it's just continuing to have conversation. We have a great team of people who are always thinking outside of the box. I think that's the one cool thing about what we do. You know, we always tell our team, don't, don't, there's nothing that's not like everything. It's a safe space, right? Mm-hmm. Throw out all the crazy ideas and we'll flush it out. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. Um, just being innovative and continuing to figure out like how we can push the envelope. I hope others are doing it for us. We hope that our vendors, you know, who are doing it with us can pass it along and share it with other people they're working with. Cause I don't feel like anything is a real secret. Mm-hmm. I think it's a win-win for us. If we can continue to elevate these farms or elevate these, you know, vendors that we work with, 
and then help others. I, I think it's a win-win situation. So, you know, if people come and ask us how we do things. Mario and I are never like, there's no secrets with us. Um, and really? I, I think that's, part of it. yeah. I, I, Cause you know, all, you know, what's the saying? All, all boats rise with high tide. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I truly believe it. I think in the past in the restaurant business before, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, it was really competitive and everyone held their trade secrets really closely. Mm -hmm. And Mario and I were like, you know what? Like, and this is what I love about kind of this new rest, uh, generation of restaurateurs. We're open and we want to support each other, you know, and we're always talking and sharing mm -hmm. um, new ideas, new things that we're doing. Cause then it makes it easier. You know, when you're talking yeah. about inflation, maybe there are things we can do so that our guests don't have to suffer her. Yeah, I do find that there's a, more people willing, like a lot of businesses, wanting to go and spend money and eat at places where they can put a face to the name. They know that this is like mm -hmm. a small business and that you know, you, they know the owner's involved, actively involved. Um, yeah, I was at Osteria Massa the other day and I saw the owner, Nancy mm -hmm. Silverton, mm -hmm. there, like actually in the restaurant helping out. Yeah. And, you know, it's a pretty incredible feeling to see the founder, you know, even at the restaurant. How hands-on are you today in the operations? I actually stepped out of the day-to-day -day in 2020. Uh, TPG had acquired us, and um, I stayed on. Mario and I stayed on for two years, and then we stepped out about, now it's been two and a half years. So we remain on the board, but we're not active on a day-to-day -day basis anymore. But prior to that, I mean, we were very active. I mean, we were there, like, you know, um, every single day. I can't say it's, it was in the restaurant. Every day, wow. Um, not in the restaurants, but in the office, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. What's that process like getting acquired from such a large company? Uh, it must have been difficult for you. Was that the first time you guys have sold to such like a large company? No, we actually, El Catterton had come in and uh, made an investment in us as well. So we kind of had already gone through that process. But it was interesting with TPG, you know, because it really was on a larger scale. Um, we learned a lot and, you know, they pushed us to grow and we did. And, you know, it, it they, it was a good experience, you know, and the outcome was what Mario and I were hoping for. And so, you know, we, we brought on a really great CEO who has continued to scale and grow the business in a very positive way. Amazing. What would you say you would love to see for the future of this amazing brand that you built, you know, in the next five, 10 years? I think it's the same thing, you know, and it, people ask me that even from day one, like, what do you want to see with Mendocino Farms? I think, you know, for us is to continue to scale in a very thoughtful way to still do it through the lens of our filters of taking care of our team, you know, mm -hmm. um, our guests and our key state, you know, all the key stakeholders that I spoke about. And really this idea of embracing eat happy, like how do we sell happy, you know? And um, if we can do that, then I believe there's a lot of room for Mendocino farms in different cities across the country. There's, you, you know, you're such an inspiration to, women entrepreneurs out there with what you've built how do you important do you think it is to mentor and nurture that idea and that philosophy you know to encourage the growth of more you know female entrepreneurs and business owners to go and take on this exciting and but scary and challenging yeah. you know world it is very important and in this next chapter like i said you know i've been out of the day-to-day -day now for the last two and a half years that's really been what i've been working on um i've been investing and advising um you know, different brands and, you know, uh, a big part of my time is mentoring and investing in female owned businesses. Uh, Cause I do believe it's important. You know, I think it's, we, we need more female leaders. We need more female owned brands. And um, that's something that I, I don't want to say I'm giving back. I think it's very fulfilling and it goes both ways. Cause I still continue to learn. 
Um, but yeah, it, it, it is very important for me to continue to kind of propel and move that, mm-hmm. move that forward. I have a daughter too. And so I don't want her to have to deal with some of the challenges I had to deal with mm-hmm. um, and still have to kind of fight and remind people like, Hey, don't do that. You know, yeah. this is why. Um, <laughs> so it's really interesting. Uh, but yeah, it's super, super important to me. Um, like I said, I, there's no secrets and I'm willing to share with everyone um, things not to do and things to do. Yeah, I'm sure it's changed quite a bit too since you know you you started on early in the business world and to today. I'm sure it's probably changed tremendously in how you navigate it now. Yeah, I mean it's changed tremendously. You know, I, I tell my husband, and I've been so fortunate because uh, you know I had a male partner, obviously, and I do believe that if I did not have his, him as a partner, I could not have raised money as easily, um, wow. and I could not. You know, some of the doors that were open would not have been there for me. Um, I would have really had to do some, like, it would have been a lot harder. Um, Why do you think so that I think is? That's part of, it's just, you know, and, and that's what we're fighting against, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you you look at what's the stati- statistics. I think it's 2% two, 2% of um, uh, women get funded comparatively wow. to, you know, it's, a, it, it's, it's shocking um, mm. when you kind of look at it on the more macro level. Um, so, yeah, and that's why it's important for me to, you know, invest financially in female-owned businesses. And it's important for me to invest um, with mentorship in my time because I don't want people to have to go through that. And the good part is I think there's been a lot of change in the last couple of years um, because of, you know, more people coming out and supporting men and women. Yeah. You see a lot of funds. Like, it's been so great to see so many funds who are only investing in female, you know, founded businesses. I just became an LP in a beauty fund and their mission is to do the same thing. And they are only investing in female owned um, beauty brands. I think also there's that idea of aspiration, being able to see, you know, as from a young age, my niece is, you know, nine years old, her being able to see women that she could look up to and achieve and you know, strive yeah. to be like, hopefully will help a lot. You know, I know this is a bigger question, but what are some of the key things that you think we could do today other than you know creating female focused only funds that could help and start nurturing this environment more and you know making it a little bit less um you know barriers to entry for women entrepreneurs i mean i think the first thing is just what you're doing right and having the conversation right and bringing it on the forefront so it's actually in people's mind like hey wait a second why am i not doing this Mm -hmm. right I don't even think that people are realizing, like I told you that stat and you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. Right. Because it, It's not even in like what, how we're thinking about it. So I think first is just having this conversation. Um, I think going out and supporting, um, I think with a lot of companies too, um, th- there are certain things that certain companies that are around can do to really help and elevate what, you know, women and elevating to leader, to leadership uh, positions. I think if you look at it, a lot of people, and I don't want to say they tap out, but, you know, it's hard when you're trying to raise a family, you're trying to have kids, you see a lot of women coming to a certain point in their career and they're like, okay, you know what? I think I have to like step back because mm-hmm. I need to raise my kids. And so, you know, when companies can provide paternity, um, you know, leave, maternity leave, things like that, where you put people mm-hmm. in even playing fields, I think that just even that even helps, um, so I think there are so many different things to do, but start with, um, you know, this conversation, telling people about it, supporting, um, 
you know, and, and providing mentorship. I can't begin to tell you how important it is, you know, creating a network. Um, men, I hate to say it, go out there and see <laughs> how you can help um, and, you know, bridge that gap. Yeah, for sure. Mentorship, I think, is super important. I always try to find mentors in my own life that I can mm -hmm. learn from as well. Yeah. What do you look for when you're investing in a female-led business? Are there certain categories that you like to invest in? Is there you know, a personality type that you look for? Is there any key characteristics that you look for when investing? I think it's, uh, I'm pretty industry agnostic, though I do, um, you know, I like to invest in um, ca categories that I know and that I can be additive to. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it's been in the CPG food space. A lot of it's, you know, that I'm starting uh, to invest in is also in beauty, um, mm -hmm. health and wellness. Um, and then there's a lot of you know, like technology as well. So pretty industry agnostic, but for anybody that, you know, like I'm looking at it's people first and it's the founders and, um, you know, that's their strength in, you know, what they know, um, their passion in what they're doing mm -hmm. and the longevity. You know, when I hear a founder who says, yeah, I want to just create this brand and I want to cash out. <laughs> you know, that, that, yeah. And I get it. Like that's our end game, right? Like I think everyone's building something so that there is some financial success in the end. But when I hear that from the get go, it's kind of like, wait, are you really here for the long haul? And why are you doing this? Right. Yeah. You know, I really like to hear founders who really have a story and a purpose behind what they're building. And I think that goes back to the passion. Um, and honestly, it's just someone who really understands. And I know this sounds more like a kind of like more tactical, but understanding the finances, uh, because if you understand your business, it's kind of like the left and right brain person. If you can really understand like what you're trying to create and kind of, you know, the, the financial knowledge behind it, then, you know, like that person has a stamina to hopefully be able to carry that, you know, company through, the next at least three to five years. Yeah, exactly. It almost has to be part of your whole entire being that you want this, you know, brand business company to like you did with, you know, restaurants, you know, it was your whole life, you know, from cleaning the toilet. Yeah. To, well, and I think that's the thing is, or if, if do they have a partner? Cause I think there's a lot of yin and yang too, right? Like Mari and I compliment each other and it's always nice to have a, you know, like companies mm -hmm. that have two founders that really complement each other or a founder who has, the wherewithal to realize that they have certain strengths, but they also have certain areas that they need to bolster and they're hiring people or have people around them to really, you know, kind of complement them and create a stronger team. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important too, is people. For the young women out there that are maybe thinking about starting their own business, not sure, you know, what to start, um, or they're just, you know, it's intimidating to go out and even, you know, get a business loan or register an LLC. Um, so some of those you know, hurdles, is there any advice that you would give them to maybe overcome those challenges and how they would, you know, start out early? I think it goes back to networking, right? Meet people, talk to people. Um, don't be afraid to ask this, you know, the, the questions that you feel like are so straightforward, but, you know, really, really go into it and become a student of whatever it is that you're curious about. And mm -hmm. it starts with meeting people. It starts with doing research. I tell people, especially people who want it, they're like, I'm thinking about starting my own restaurant. First thing I say to them is go work in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what do you mean? I go, <laughs> go work at a Starbucks, go work at a McDonald's, go work mm -hmm. at a Mendocino Farms, like get to understand the nuts and bolts of it and really figure out, A, do you want to do it? And this is something you're passionate about because you got to love, like I said, cleaning the toilets all the way to working to the register and prepping the food. Um, you know, to all the, to the, all the other shiny, cool stuff. So, 
Um, I, I think it's really talking to people. And like you said, asking the questions, um, how do I get a loan? Um, what are the pitfalls? What are my challenges? What are the great things about it? You know, what should I be thinking about? And I, I think with that, it starts to give you a better understanding of, you know, how to start and where to start. That's incredible. Thank you so much for taking some time to give us some of these insights. It was an incredible conversation. Learned a lot. And I think our listeners will learn an incredible amount for starting their own businesses from you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, it's been a total pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm actually hungry now and I'm going to go to Amanda Tuna <laughs> Farms and get my not so fried with the couscous, the large couscous. Um, yes. So good. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon.